And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Moses there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. From the book of the Exodus, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. In this morning's readings, we journeyed not only to Bethlehem, but also to Mount Sinai. Not only to the place of the births of the Judaic kings and of Jesus himself, but to the place of the birth of the nation. We don't often consider Mount Sinai when we think about Christmas, do we? We usually think about a baby. We think about Mary and Joseph and angels. We think about shepherds. We might even think about Charlie Brown before we think about Mount Sinai. But rarely, rarely if ever, do we think to consider the Old Testament at all and its place in the Christmas story, let alone this specific account of Moses climbing up on Mount Sinai, the episode of Aaron making a golden calf and the people singing in worship before it is still fresh in the mind. Moses' anger had burned hot and the Lord's even hotter upon seeing this golden calf The Lord was determined to pare down this new nation to Moses alone and to build from him a great nation, to leave the Israelites dead in the desert. But Moses interceded. He interceded in the tent of meeting as he talked with God face to face. And the scriptures tell us that he used to speak with God as a man speaks to his friend. Moses bristles at this idea that He should be left alone and to make a great nation of him and all the people gone. He says, basically, why would you bring this people out of Egypt just to let them die in the desert? You are a great God. Why would you do this? But Moses asks for three things. First, he asks that the Lord would show him his ways and more importantly, show him his glory. Second, he asks that the Lord would consider that this nation, Israel, is his people and no one else's. Third, that the Lord's presence would not leave the people ever as they journey about there in the desert and as they enter the land. Moses says this, how shall it be known that I have found favor in thy sight, I and thy people? Is it not in thy going with us that we are distinct I and thy people from all other people that are upon the face of the earth. This is essentially what he says. We are distinct because you go with us, Lord. And if you don't go with us, then we are nothing. We're just like any other nation. And we know what happens next. Moses takes two fresh tablets. Remember, the others had been broken. He takes the fresh ones up on the mountain early in the morning. He is all alone. No one is allowed to go with him. No animal, no priest, no friend is allowed to come near. And the glory cloud descends upon the mountain. And Moses hears audibly the divine name proclaimed. As he had heard it many years before, but you get the sense that it is something more awesome than that. And then the glory of the Lord passes by him as he hears this from the cloud. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, 
visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. By the way, when he's saying the Lord, the Lord, it is the divine name. And then the Lord makes a covenant with Moses to drive out the nations before their path as they enter the land. Now, it might be tempting to see this account as a portrayal of a God gone mad, a bipolar God, burning hot with wrath one moment and burning with love and forgiveness to his people the next. But I would make the claim that this is a rather superficial reading of the text. The Israelites had treated God as merely something less than deserving of their love, even after their miraculous deliverance from the hand of the Egyptians. They had not taken his absolute and utter holiness seriously. But Moses did. Moses understands just what is at stake. That of these people being this nation, being a nation set apart, a nation consecrated. And this is the reason that he asks for what he asks for. He wants to know God's character, his glory, He wants God to take this nation for his own, and he wants this newly formed nation to have what others do not have, the Lord's abiding presence. Time and again, the people would have their flirtations and entanglements with the idols of the nations, worthless things, not holy, just terribly pathetic, not powerful, mere parodies of the created order. But Moses gets more than what he asked for. Moses becomes the recipient of glory as God proclaims his name there on the mountain. And for the first time, you have a nation which is consecrated, not according to their idea of God, but according to God's revelation of himself, specifically with his name. This story, following the return from the exile in Babylon many hundreds of years later, forms the identity and purpose of the Jewish people, a people formed not by the place, Mount Sinai, but by a particular theological heritage, that of cleaving to the God who is, the God who is holy and completely other, and the God who is holy. They kept this in continual remembrance by refusing to use the divine name Referring, the, keeping the commandment, the second commandment to the nth degree. And even today, Orthodox Jews will not write the O in the middle of the name God, will refer to God as Hashem, meaning the name. But the problems with Second Temple Judaism were many. Though they were a people who revered the name of God, they had been deprived of his presence. The Ark of the Covenant had been carted off, the cloud of glory no longer settled upon that temple. Though they had returned from exile, they were still very much in exile because, again, the exile is not about geography. It is about presence. It is not about a nation being where God is. It is about God being where the nation is. The presence of God, which used to be in their midst, is no longer there. They no longer have it. Idolatry had deprived them of it. And idolatry deprives us of the presence of God in every age, in every time. They can be satisfied by nothing other than the return of God to his people. Otherwise, they would be just like any other nation. 
This makes the accounts given in the Gospel of Luke all the more shocking. The glory of the Lord shining in the fields where shepherds kept their flocks. Not high in the mountains, not on a temple mountain, not only to one man, revered as the greatest of all, but to common men and women. These shepherds proclaim the good news of the angel to those gathered around that baby. Not only as the Lord returned to his people, he has shown them his face. He has revealed to them his name. He has fulfilled his covenant, leaving something which is at the same time terrible and awesome. And at the same time, he has promised to never leave them. For there in the manger is God and man in one divine person, whom the heavens cannot contain, robed in human flesh. And he is named a name both human and divine. Jesus, Yeshua, God saves. He, even he, is redeemed as a firstborn son with blood, made a partaker of the covenant by circumcision. And yet his name is above every name. He is descended from David according to the flesh, as Paul writes, and designated son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Both son of God and son of David, son of God and son of man. You see, on that day, that little holy house in Bethlehem became a place more filled with the presence of God than Mount Sinai could ever be. Certainly more filled with the presence of God than Mount Sinai, had, than Mount Zion had ever been. And everything else all rolled up into one. A gilded box no longer needed to carry God's word because he had entered fully into human nature itself. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. This account given in the Gospel of Luke should root out the ways in which we commit real offenses against the Lord's name. The flippant invocations and the half-hearted pronunciations that should deprive us of any idolatrous or fanciful notions of God who is like us. And only that. My friend Jim Packer often says that the problem is not when we make God, you know, gods in our image. That's well. The problem is not making uh, making images of gods. It's making God in our image, making God like us. No, the Christian must instead hold that God is the eternal and everlasting God who has taken to himself in Jesus, taken us to himself in Jesus, who has saved us, who has shown us his glory, made us partakers of his very nature. And this account should set us ablaze with the desire to know God's holy law, given most perfectly in Jesus. This account should make us also a people filled with zeal for the Lord's presence. We often wonder, where is the Lord's presence? If you listen to any uh, popular worship songs today, it's almost like, I hunger for the Lord's presence, but where is He? Where is He? Where is He? Yet the church teaches us a different way. Asking us, does He not dwell in us by His Holy Spirit? Imparted to us? Indwelling us bodily? Does he not dwell in his body, the church, the tabernacle of the Holy Spirit, and the mystical carrying forth of the incarnate body of Jesus, constituting that same presence revealed so gloriously in Bethlehem? 
Is not the same Christ born in the man- born and laid in a manger here as well today? Does He not dwell among us this very day present among us in the sacrament of the Eucharist? Offering us fellowship with His very body and blood. For what kind of people would we be? What kind of church would we be without the presence of the Lord? We would be just like everybody else. And especially in a time like today, who wants to be normal? Not me. No. Jesus is among us. And that makes us different. Lastly, this account calls us to worship. Offering our bodies in spiritual worship as a living sacrifice to the God who offered himself in the body as a living sacrifice for our redemption. The shepherds glorified God and praised him for all they had seen and heard. But what had they heard? Well, they had heard the good news. The good news of the birth of a Savior, Christ the Lord. The good news that they would find him. The good news that God has not forsaken his people, has not left them, has not abandoned them to die in a desert, but has come personally in glory and power and humility at the same time. What is before us today is to offer ourselves to the Lord's presence, to offer ourselves to his powerful and glorious purposes today as we worship. And let us worship his holy name well. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.